Failure is critical to success. This was a fight for my career, and I would just about sell my soul to the devil to beat this thing. I wouldn't, but damn close. How do you handle fear? I don't want the grieving to be over. I don't want to lose anything with my son. My dad was a, a tough dude. My dad's dead and I'm still afraid of him. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. You have two things that you have control over. Number one, how you prepare and how you react to what happens to you. If it's a big dream, that means that you already love something. 95% of it's done. The head start is you got to get up early. You got three hours advance on your competition every day. Can you imagine what that's going to wind up with at the end of a year? Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Vibe with Humanity podcast, a show intended on spreading positivity by showcasing inspiring stories with real takeaways. I'm your host, Trevor. Today's guest is Steve Sachs. Steve is a retired Major League Baseball superstar with awards like Silver Slugger, Rookie of the Year. He was named All-Star five times. He's got two World Series championships under his belt. After baseball, he went on to become a financial advisor, extremely successful, a business executive and life coach. He's an author. He's a podcaster. He's a keynote speaker. His latest book, Shift, is all about cultivating and maintaining the mindset necessary to achieve things like he has. Personally, one thing I can tell you about Steve, he is the guy you see on camera, that positive, upbeat, humble guy who gives everyone the time of day. So, Steve, with that... Welcome to Vibe with Humanity. I'm really excited to host you. And I'm excited to be here. I mean, Trevor, you're you're amazing at this. I can tell <laughs> right you. now. You know, it's an aura that you have around people. And when you see them in action, you, you've got all the ingredients to be brilliant at this. So just keep keep pumping away and keep loving it. That's the main thing. Keep I, loving I it. I do love it. You're I do doing love it. awesome, man. Thank you. you. So I, we all know, you know. Steve, your career, we know you personally and stuff. I'm curious about your childhood. Like, What was your living environment like? How did you get along with your brother, Dave? What was your parenting style you were raised under? Like, You guys are tough mofos. <laughs> you're yeah. tough mentally. You're yeah. tough physically. Yeah. Not intimidated, not yeah. not scarable. Mm -hmm. Did that come from your dad? Like, What was your household like? Tell me a little bit. Well, thanks, Trevor. We grew up on a farm in West Sacramento, and um, we grew up in a... Uh, kind of a strict Catholic household. And uh, my dad was a, a, a tough dude. Um, my dad's dead and I'm still afraid of him. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, okay. he was a tough dude, man. And he was old school and my mom was very, very loving. My, my father was German, my mom was Italian, so it made a real interesting mix around the household, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, they were great, great parents. Um, they both passed away from this earth way too young. My dad died at 47 of heart disease and my mom died at 58 uh of basically the flu and we lost them way too soon but what they give us the enrichment they gave us through um their knowledge and their love and support um it and it was it was amazing it was a great blend of uh caring discipline love and, and all that mixed in and you know we had a lot of personal responsibility and self-reliance growing up on on that farm we had to work together. We found out what teamwork was. Farmer strong, right? Correct. Because we had, you know, we had a self-sustaining farm as far as for our family went for our fruits and vegetables that we raised, cattle that we raised, some we slaughtered, some we had to sell at the auction. Um, so we made we made it work. My dad was a truck driver. My mom was a stay-at-home mother. And my when my dad had his heart heart attacks, he had five heart attacks before he passed away. 
he couldn't work any longer, so my mom had to go and get a job, and my dad stayed home. So we made it all work, and all of us kids worked. I was buying my own clothes in the sixth grade from the jobs that I had. Uh, I've been working since I was 10 years old. Uh, I had a I had a, a gun permit when I was 10 years old. I was hunting when I was 10 years old. Uh, and um, I've basically, I had this conversation with uh, some friends of mine recently when they were doing an interview, and I've basically been a grown man since I was 15 years old when I got my first real job was where I was paying taxes and and stuff and uh so I you know I paid for my own car and and uh, my own clothes and I was actually on my own when I was 17 I was button heads with my dad a lot cuz we mm. were very very both determined people and uh, but you know rules at my dad's house stood strong and I I respected that so I uh, didn't get along with my dad too well, so I moved out. I was uh, I was on my own as a senior in high school, and I had an apartment. I did not know that. And then uh, we, you know, we patched things up. And towards the end of my dad's life, we were very close. My dad and I were very close, and uh, we understood each other really well. Um, and he was a product of his environment. You know, the way he grew up was very old school. And the more I learned about my dad, especially after he passed away, it was uh, the wonderful things that he did for his family. You can see the pressures that he had on him at a young age. His grandfather, my great-grandfather, died at 47. His dad died at 47, and my dad died at 47. All of them from the same thing, from heart disease. So my dad pretty much knew it was on, the writing was on the wall that you know, he wasn't probably going to be around a long time. He had sometimes a bit of a cantankerous you know, uh, demeanor. He, was, he had a lot of issues and worries about, about this. But one thing is that important to him a couple things is his faith and of course and uh his family that was the most important things to him didn't matter if my dad and i had an argument before school started he was behind the screen at every one of my games never missed a game cheering me on telling me giving me tips yeah for 99.9 percent of the time i would my dad was great he was really great and that's where i think all my family have pretty much that common denominator is we we grew up to view the world as not as tough as some of the things that my dad might put in front of us, you know. I think, uh, you know, when you look at it, the whole scope of things, it was a it was a great way to grow up. Um, one story I want to tell you about my dad is that when when he was growing up, as I said, his dad died at a young age, and he had seven siblings, and his mom, of course, uh, actually a couple of the siblings had moved, had grown up and been out of the house for a while, but they still depended. On, on the household at, at times. And my dad quit school, took on three jobs, and made the, the family float. He didn't want to lose the house. They had a car. He didn't want to lose the car. Nobody asked him to. He just did it. My dad was a doer, not a talker. Didn't talk much at all. He did it. Didn't complain either, I bet. Never complained. I, I, I remember that. my dad having open-heart surgery, and he was sitting up on his bed before, right before he went in. Never one time did he say, I'm in pain, or I need help. He just did it. That's the way he was. And that was a great example for us. Mm. So on your own at 17, how did you maintain the baseball trajectory you were on? I guess you could say, Trevor, that obsession is a great thing. And, and you have to take the word in its true context. I'm not saying you walk around with a bass drum mallet and crack your head all the time. I'm self-obsessed. No, it was... Uh, I use that word, and I think it's a it's a fantastic thing. And I think if you see anybody that's successful, they they have to have some sort of obsession in what they're doing. In, in that 
it's at the forefront of your mind and you're not going to stop until you accomplish your goal. That's all, that's all it means to me. But I think it's important to be absolutely obsessed with, with comp, you know, accomplishing your goals. And that's, that's the way it's been my whole life. I, I can tell you, so I started actually doing uh, uh, written down and, and true workouts, you know, um, uh, detailed t- type of workouts because I was a professional baseball player at 18. I haven't missed a workout, and I'm 64, one time in my whole life. I've never missed one. Five days a week, you said? If it was available and, it, and I have a schedule, I've never missed one since I was 18 years old. Wow. It's never happened. So I've heard the phrase, obsession eats talent for breakfast. Yeah. Now, yes. you mentioned it's necessary to have, and mm-hmm. I believe it is, especially mm-hmm. when you're going after big dreams. How do you think people can find an obsession? Do you, do you think it finds them? What does that process look like? I think it's a little probably a both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, talent's great. I mean, all the time. I hear people all the time, hey, my kid down the block throws 95. Yeah, everybody throws 95. You know, yeah. I mean, you find guys that fall out of trees to do that, Yeah, you know, and you go to spring training and you see coaches leaning up against the uh, batting cage and watching the new guy that they just drafted uh, a couple of years ago. And he's still an A ball. And they're thinking, why? You see, boy, he can throw. Look at him throw from the outfield. Then he runs the bases. Boy, he runs like a gazelle. Look at that speed. You know, watch him hit the ball. Boy, he hits the ball a mile. This guy's got everything. And then they both look at each other and they said, can't play a lick. Really? Can't play a lick. What do you think the missing ingredient is? Well, there's two things. Okay. Two things missing. You have to have a dogged determination. That's the heart. You know, I'm I'm not saying being cocky. The fire, the the fire. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to have some some stones, man. For sure. You got to have some stones. And that's the part where you just, I mean, you grit your teeth and you... Stick your nose in there and say, "Let's let's battle it out, man." Yeah, you and be willing to potentially look like a fool. That's yes, part of those yes, stones. Yes, you got to be able to put it on the line. I'll tell you a really quick one. When I when I got uh, I asked the White Sox for my release uh, back in '94, I was going to re- retire. Also had a bad foot. Time to retire. Uh, they said, "Okay." They gave my release. I went home. Two weeks later, the Oakland A's called me and they said, "We need a second baseman for about two, uh, for about three weeks." Steve Brent Gates is hurt. Can you come and try out and? you know, we know you just got your release from the White Sox. I said, all right, well, so I went down there. I hit about 10 balls in the seats in practice. I said, where's this coming from? I'm not a home run hitter, you know, and just <laughs> in batting practice. And then, um, you know, I hadn't played in two or three weeks, and Tony Russa, the manager, he said, Steve, I'll tell you what, why don't you, uh, you know, we're going to sign you, so uh, how long bef- do you need before you can play? And I said, I don't know, Tony, maybe 10 days, you know, got to get ready. He said, uh, how about tomorrow? I said, well, you want me to play tomorrow? I was like, oh, my gosh. He says, Steve, look, uh, you've, you've made a fool of yourself before, haven't you? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah. yeah. He said, okay, what the hell's the difference? Just, just try it out. And I did it. I did it. I, I played the next day. But that, that's an example right there of saying you got to be able and willing to be transparent and put it on the line. Whatever happens, happens. Because a lot of what happens is not in your control. You have two things that you have control over. Number one, how you prepare and how you react to what happens to you. The outcome, that's kind of, that's more of God's deal, mm-hmm. I think. But you have control of how you prepare and how you react. Explain the react part a little bit. Well, not everything goes perfect. You know, there's going to be... <laughs> yeah. Okay. We all know that, right? Yep. It happens to every one of us. Mm-hmm. Um I failed so many times in my life. Uh, it's I'm not afraid to talk about it, uh, you know. But 
lots of failures I've had, and I, I, which I think is absolutely critical to being successful. Failure is critical to success because you got to learn where that failure wall is and bounce off of that and learn the guidelines for that. It's like a kid that grows up with no discipline. I mean, they grow very insecure because they don't know where the guidelines are. They're, they're lost. The same thing, I think, when somebody's striving for a goal. If you've never failed and you can't hit that failure wall, you're going to be pretty insecure about where's the guidelines here? How do I know where to push more? How do I know where to maybe pull back some? So I think failure is critical. Not that we're searching for it. It's going to find you. But you have to be ready to react to that and counter it. And, and you know, don't let it swallow you. How do you find those fail points? So you, obviously you want to build the boundaries just before failure. Do you believe in just going so far yeah. that you're going to fail? So then you work backwards. It, Is that it, how you look it, it? It'll let you know. I think, you know, it'll, it'll just let you know. And you know, when I went through that throwing issue, I, I went two months of my career um, where I couldn't even throw the ball to first base. And I was a major league all-star. I was a rookie of the year. And the next year I made a couple of errors early in it. And I lost my confidence. It, it wasn't, anything with mental blocks or anything. It was, it was a loss of confidence that I had that I had to build back in practice. And I did that, and I got back to where, you know, by the time I was with the Yankees, I was a top-fielding second baseman in the American League. I went from that to that. And it was all because I had to go back and find my confidence again. Because I knew way, way, way down there that I, this, is a, this is an anomaly. This is of absurd. Course. The Dodgers used to take me out there in the middle of the day. Like game was at 7.30. They'd take me out there at noon when there was nobody around. And they'd blindfold me. And I'd throw the ball blindfolded. And I'd hit that guy in the chest right there without moving the glove 10 times in a row. Blindfolded. This was like nothing. What and was it? It, 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 was just, it was just a loss of confidence. And I can remember when it happened, how it happened. I threw a ball away and it started getting in my craw. And then... I started thinking about it, internalizing it, and it got to be this monster where I, I grew and to, uh, you know, if I would have known what I know now about thought and, you know, what you think about the most in your life is going to grow the most and that type of thing, I would, have, I would have monitored those thoughts and I probably had never gone through that, but I didn't know how to do it then. How long did you have to practice to get that confidence back? How many hours per day? What oh, did the practice look like? Yeah. It's a good question. I, I I'd go I'd, I'd go and and I would take every ground ball in batting practice and before that, you know, a couple hours a day, and I would take it as I would I would almost transfix that practice as it was a game. So every practice I had, it was a game situation. So actually, when the game rolled around, it's like I've already done this today. This is this is actually kind of easy, and my confidence started to grow. And I would tell myself on the field, okay, that was a good play. Was good. You know, and I would compliment myself, inserting confidence, inserting positivity, letting feed that nature instead of feeding the other one. You know, that old thing about the wolves that you've heard the Indian tale about the wolves. Which one's going to come out to win the fight between these two wolves? The one that you feed. You've got to feed that positive thing. It's so important to feed it and nurture it. And the other one's going to eventually die out. So that's what I did. And it worked magically. The last 44 games in a row, no errors. And I signed my first big deal of my career, a five-year deal that set my career on a new trajectory because I got over that sucker. I was like, oh, man, I was That's so happy. Awesome. I was so glad. I, I, felt, I felt so free. I felt so free. I bet. And, and had it not been for 
building blocks that I had as a youngster growing up on that farm and going through tough times, my dad pushing and, you know, and, and then, and, and all that, I, I never would have gone through this. I never would have made it. I never would have made it. So it's important to gather uh, strategies like building blocks on how to do things. If you don't know how to fix it, what, what the heck, heck are you going to do then? You're, you're out in a boat in the middle of a lake and there's no help. Or if you can't recognize it. There, there's yeah. some people that don't even realize they're thinking negatively or positively. That's right. It's a feeling. So that's, that's the thing about the thoughts. Is that, how's that thought make you feel? I mean, and you got to be honest with yourself. But I think it's important to uh, keep in the good and jettison those bad thoughts, even down to trivial thoughts. So important because, like I said, what you think about the most in your life is going to grow the most. So in turn, your thoughts are going to be crystallized into habits, and it creates a circumstance. Let me give you one quick example. Yeah, please. Don Mattingly. You know who Don Mattingly is, right? He's, he was the first baseman on my team with the New York Yankees. He should be in the Hall of Fame. One of the best players I've ever seen. You've heard of Wade Boggs. He's mm -hmm. a Hall of Fame, right? Uh, this guy was maybe probably better than Wade Boggs because I'll he had home out. run power too. Don Mattingly, one of the greatest ever. We're in the. I'm in my first year with the Yankees. It's in Yankee Stadium. The season's over. It's the last day of the season. We're out of it by 15 games. We were out two weeks ago. Okay, so the game is completely irrelevant. Uh, it's the last day of the season. It's first of October. It's sweltering hot in New York. He's underneath the stadium. Two and a half hours before the game, I went down there just to find a bat that I left the day before down there. And Don has been in there for about an hour, and he is just sweating. He comes out of the cage. His hands are bleeding from the blisters. This is a guy that had already had a magnificent year, had a big year. But we had, as a team, no chance to win it because we didn't have any pitches. So we were out of the race. Why is he down there on the last day of the season? The game meant nothing. He shouldn't even... Lots of guys wouldn't even play in the last day. And he's working like that. He's had a monster year. Why is he doing this? It. Who would do that? He would. Why would he? Because he doesn't know any different. That's all he knows. You see, the circumstances that surrounded him at the time don't dictate his ethics. His ethics have created his circumstance. Oh, you see the difference? Yes. So he's he's got a process that he follows he's got regardless. A process. Okay. And whatever's happening around him, he's like blinders. It doesn't matter. Okay, I've made the all-star team. Okay, I've hit 30 or 45 home runs, whatever it is. That's that doesn't matter. What matters is right now is I'm in process for the way I work, and it ain't over yet. And when that's over, then I'll stop working out. But the circumstances don't dictate what I do. I will dictate what my circumstances will be by the way I work. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it sure does. You mentioned uh, small details when it comes to positive versus negative thinking. Mm -hmm. I imagine that comes down to even like, I hate this meal instead of, oh, I get to have food. I'd love to hear an example of that. And then yeah. also, do you build and apply processes to multiple categories of your mm -hmm. life? The small details are maybe the most important ones because they, they can become insidious. They can be where you don't really see them creeping in on you. Um, you know, they, they are like a little dog scratching at your leg, you know, constantly and, and whatnot. So there's actually, a, a, a method that I've had that I talk to people about when I was doing coaching. And that is, I will physically, you know, you can compartmentalize this by taking a physical object and making it whatever that negative thought that keeps coming is putting it in a box 
and putting it up in your closet or throwing it in the garbage or flushing something in the toilet or whatever, but to physically just get rid of this thing, right? And some people do it that way. It's called, it's called structures. Some people put a band around their wrists saying, okay, I can't eat all that candy that I've been eating. It, there's been to popular... remind themselves. Yes. Basically. There's yeah. been popular ones. In the 70s, when you'd open up your refrigerator and there's a little pig in there going, oink, 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 you know? <laughs> that was a structure, you know? So I like structures, you know? I like structures. I like uh, physical reminders, like I talked about putting the thing in the closet or flushing the toilet. But you got to fight them. You got to fight them. You can't just let them grow. But the little ones, the little ones become dangerous because they grow into bigger ones. I, I think it's important to, to, to almost triage your own life, like find out what's, what's, the, what's the most important thing to me right now and then work back from there it's you know every every day i have a list that i make every night and i i write the time and the task and i and i do this every single night so when i wake up in the morning there it is my day is all set for me it keeps me on task and you know keeps me organized because i'll forget about it i'll forget about something and this way i don't do it <laughs> so I it's like important it. to do that how do you handle fear okay um i talk a lot about fear and when I'm relating to people and, you know, you like a, hold that yeah. because it's raining and I have a spout here that's going to click. If oh, I forgot okay. to put a rag in is it. it is it raining? Yeah, yeah go yeah. ahead. One second. I'm so sorry. All right. Back. New shirt. Technical difficulties. Had <laughs> to fix a downspout. Got soaked. We're here. Steve, how do you handle fear? Uh, well, I had, a, I had a good dose of it when I was going through this throwing issue. I was scared to death. I thought I was going to lose my career. And so I, 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 I made a choice. I had to make a choice. I had to step over that line. I had to step in there. And I said, right now, for a while, this is going to be a huge fight. And I've got to get this right. And I'm going to make a commitment. So I made that commitment. I stepped over the line. I made the commitment. I said, right now, this is more important than anything. It's more important than my family. It's more important than anything. And I would just about, about this far, sell my soul to the devil to beat this thing. I wouldn't, but damn close. This was a fight for my career. And it was more of a fight for my salvation as a person. It was more about that to me, because I was embarrassed about not being able to throw a ball straight. And this was, it was more than just being a baseball player. So I, I made that commitment and and I beat it. I had to take this on as a fight. I had to take this on as I had to bite this, this whatever it was, right back in the face and challenge it. I had to, first step, I had to admit it. I have, a, I have an issue. I have something wrong. Because the first instinct for people is, ah, it's no big deal. It's just a little glitch. I'll, it'll go away. No, I had a problem. I was thinking about it at night, waking up in the morning with it, going to bed with it, having lunch with it. It was always with me. And I, I, I got tired of being in prison. And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I made that commitment. And I had to have a fight with this thing. And I had to bite it right back in the face, like I said. And, and you know, I was like, okay, we'll see who wins this. And I challenged it. I challenged this demon or whatever it was. And I beat the hell out of it. I just beat the snot out of it. And never had it again. Beat it down. I love beat that. Beat it down. Is it okay if we talk a little possibly about the Johnny situation sure. surrounding the yeah. healing? I'm, sure. It's, you went through the worst imaginable thing a human can go through, the sudden loss or disappearance of a child. Mm -hmm. You are here, resilient. You're still full of light. Your faith is stronger than ever. Mm -hmm. 
Do you have any insight you can share on your grieving and healing process that can help other people that are suffering through something? Yeah, that's, uh, it's, you never move on, you move forward, try to. Uh, and, um, you know, Johnny was just, uh, he's my loving son. Um, there's, it, and as much as you try to move on, your life's never going to be the same. Of course. It's a different world now. And I accept that. I know that God, that Johnny's with the Lord, and he's in a much better place than we are. I know all that. But it never does heal. You know, the pain's never going away until you take your last breath or your heart doesn't beat anymore. That's how, how it is. Uh, I was so close to my son. I knew him better than anybody. And, and uh, you know, I think about what his last seconds on the earth were like and you know it's a it's a tough thing i have his i have his autopsy report i have his um i have the uh the report of the crash site all that and i've never looked at it i have it i don't think i could either. i can't look at it you know i just i just know that um he's in a he's in a great place and uh i will see him again and i believe that I had a guy come up to me in the store one time. Never, never saw him before, Trevor. And he came up to me, and uh, never knew this man. Came up to me, he put his hand on my shoulder, and shook my hand, and he didn't say anything. And he he walked away. But he didn't have to say anything. He uh, he said a lot without saying anything. Really, I could see it in his face. I wonder if he was going through the same thing. It sounds like it's not something that is ever going to be over. It's something no. you coexist with. So a lot of the tools yeah. that you're teaching in your book and your yeah. seminars are yeah. things that you're applying that yeah. obviously work and some of the worst things that can happen. Yeah. And I've talked to Johnny's mom about it too. And, um, you know, we, we both kind of said the same thing. It's like, you know, the grieving and all that. And, uh, I don't want it to be over. I don't want the grieving to be over because I don't want, I don't want to uh, to lose anything with my son. At least the grieving, I know I can feel him a lot. And it's almost uh, when you've gone through something like this, um, even though it's the worst thing that you can ever imagine, um, it, in a sense, you know, it makes me feel like I feel close to my son still. You know? I love that you've been able to capture good from this with the foundation you created. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Captain John J. Sachs family foundation is a, uh, you know, Johnny had such a passion for, for flying. And if he could come back, he'd be in the Osprey tomorrow. He loved it. And he was an expert at flying that, you know, the way he died, it was a double engine failure. And I uh, didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And the report double engine failure. And it's called a hard clutch engagement where it reverberated from one engine over to the other and shattered both of them. And he, they had no chance to recover the aircraft. It just fell like a rock out of the sky. And uh, from the last conversation with the, uh, with the tower, they had 11 seconds before they hit the ground. And that's what haunts me is those 11 seconds. It's like, I know he knew. I think he did. He's 
a very smart man. Um, but I also think that he was in work mode and they have a protocol they go through when things like this happen. They train for it every day. And he was, you know, Johnny was a professional. He was a tremendous, tremendous professional. <laughs> you talked about obsession. All right. I watched that guy from a young age say, I'm going to be a pilot. I'm yeah. going to be a pilot. Yeah. And he, he struggled with certain parts of the certifications. He had to work harder than others. He did. Every time. <clears throat> and he earned that he got set back and twice with a when he when he broke his uh, he broke his elbow. Mm. He had to have it put back together actually by Doctor Neil Elatrosh, which is the number one orthopedic surgeon in the world. He's the Dodgers and uh, and the Rams uh, surgeon. Doctor Elatrosh put his elbow together without any prosthetic usage at all. Oh my god! Amazing what he did. So he got back in line. Then he found out he had astigmatism in his eye. Had to get back in line again. So when Johnny got in, he was a little bit older than the rest of the chaps that were coming in there, you know? So when he was doing the testing, he was like a grown man going against these guys who were 21, 22, and he was just blowing them out of the water. I mean, his test scores were amazingly high. He was like in the top, you know, 5% in the physical tests, the written tests, the aptitude tests, G-force tests, all that. And I saw that one. It scared the hell out of me watching that. Uh, but he, he was uh, kind of like... Had a little advantage of him because he was not old, but he was a little older than them. He was he was a, he was a grown man by then, you know. So well, he he also had that intangible drive. Like I was gonna say, anytime I'd run into him <laughs> throughout life, it was within a few minutes. He's talking about the, the pilot, and he's just real serious, real driven. Like yeah. this guy is not going to be stopped. No, There's, nothing is going to stop he Johnny wasn't. from getting get that pilot. When, when he was when he was actually. Uh, uh, you know, at the headquarters and they were on downtime and the other, you know, officers were there. They, they told me they would have to actually say, Hey, uh, Captain Sachs, um, uh, you're, it's, uh, you know, at ease, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be working right now, but that's the way he was. He was, he yep. was, a, he was a professional and he, he wore out the tests. I mean, Johnny was really smart, but, but he had to work at it too. And he just wore out the tests. God forbid that you you have to go to, go to the distance with him as far as the testing and all that stuff, because he's going to just wear it out. And that's it's like he just kept going. You know what I mean? And that's that's kind of like a that's kind of like what I had to do too. So I feel that's why I felt such a I understood him what he was going through. You know, yeah. and, and your your dad would have as well. Oh yeah, yeah my dad was like, same way. So same way. long line of leadership genetics in there. I had a question for you. you. You talk a lot about leadership, and you're big on leadership. Yeah. Two parts. Can you explain what a leader is yeah. for you? Mm -hmm. um, and then do you think that can be trained into someone? A leader to me is somebody that does it by example. Don Mattingly was a great leader on our team in our clubhouse. Didn't say much. Didn't have to. Everybody followed him. Everybody watched him, and they, they did what he did because... He played when he was hurt, and he didn't tell anybody about it. Everybody knew he was hurt, but he wouldn't say anything. He would play every day, whether it rained or not, whether he was hurt or not, he was playing, right? He put up the huge numbers. He was a perennial all-star. Uh, he was, he was the, what people wanted to see, you know? He was what was good about the team. Um, and he didn't do it by being the locker room lawyer, okay? Nobody, you see, 
in, in some of the football games where they have one guy in the middle and everybody else is around him and sure, jacking everybody sure. up. That's great. And, and to me, they're not doing that for leadership. They're just kind of trying to get everybody riled up. That's And, and people will see that and say, well, look at that leader on the field. That's not a leader. Could be, but doesn't mean he's a leader. A leader is somebody that does it by example and people follow him. That's what a real leader is to me. Is action. Action. Does it and doesn't have to talk about it. Okay. Th that, so that's leadership. That to second part question then, can it be trained? It sounds like if it's action-based, it absolutely can be trained. Yeah. You can build a structure like you're talking about. Absolutely. Stick to that structure. Absolutely. When you get success, people are going to want to follow in your footsteps. And, and the key there is they want to, okay? The key is if they have that in them but really don't know how to do it, but if they have the desire in them, becoming a leader is, yeah, they can absolutely do that. I believe that 100%. There's, there's, there's great potential out there for leadership for people. They, they just have to have, you know, be shown how to do it. I think that's true. Once they get a taste of it, it's kind of infectious. You know, they'll just they'll stick on it. Another thing with Steve Sachs Speaks that's come up is you're, you want to be comfortable having difficult conversations. I think that's something missing in American society. Mm -hmm. I just came from the corporate world. That was very hard for people to do was to have direct straight mm -hmm. talk, as yeah. you would call it. One thing that I found challenging when I do that, because I don't mind that, but my nerves can get away from me. And all of a sudden, one wrong thing is said, I feel offended or something gets me and my fight or flight goes. And now I've lost the ability to cognitively think. Mm -hmm. I just want to like rage on someone. And yeah. I think later I should have said this, should have said that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any input on techniques or how to keep emotions calm during tough yeah. conversations? Yeah. In conversation... Um, in interviews and, and whatnot, stay on a plan. I think if you do that, that you kind of circumvent a lot of those emotional yeah. things that can get it, you know, that can get you riled up yeah. and whatnot. But I try to think about the ultimate outcome of what do I want to get from this, and um, I don't let those details or the emotional part of it. Um, I, I try to block that out from the beginning. Is that my plan is to not go there, not get emotional about it. And if I do, I'm going to take a step back, take a breath, and Go to the next stone. Okay. Go to the next stepping stone. That's what I try to do. Because I'm trying to wind up at a certain spot. So you pick a destination of where you want the conversation yep. to go. Mm -hmm. Practice ahead of time, repping it out a little bit, and maybe mm -hmm. anticipate things that could upset you. And then if they yeah. do, pause, take a breath, and then keep the destination in mind and resume the conversation. Exactly. Exactly. All right. And that's all you can do because you can't control what the other person's going to say, you know, pretty much. Um, I think... As I said to you in the break, I think you're a really good listener, and that is a key. You watch great interviewers like Larry King and all these guys. The key is listening, not really, you know, what the interviewer is bringing out because you're great at it. And the reason I'm saying that, and I'm not trying to blow smoke, yeah, is I mean it. Is I know if I'm doing a good interview with somebody, I'm not talking very much. I want the other person to talk, right? And I'm listening. Because that might bring up something that I can bring up later for or sure. whatever, you know. So Well, it helps when you the got... guest is a mesmerizing keynote speaker you used to. Thanks, buddy. So I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. So that's, I think that's the key, is to realize I'm going to a certain spot. Um, and, you know, if you know, you, you do your homework and stuff, I can tell you've really done your homework. Um, you know that what, there might be some trip lines in there that might send the other person off. Yep. Right? And try to maybe to avoid those things. Maybe. So... I've done that too. I've done things where I've done an interview with somebody. Oh, I'm not mentioning this. 
<laughs> I know what happens when this happens. That's a respect thing, which you yeah. also talk a lot about. Sure. I appreciate yeah, that. Exactly. And so that's why I'm not going to go there if I'm going to do that kind of interview. But most of all, if I'm interviewing somebody, I want them to talk, you know. 100%. Just give them the... That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Just try to talk the it's least. Like sometimes when I've had it, when my daughter was growing up, when they were 13 to 15, you know how those days or <laughs> times are when you... Oh, you're going to... I'm approaching. You're approaching. Yes. That. You're going to have fun with that, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get some gray like me. Yeah, and so anyway, I remember one time my daughter, she says, um, she was just letting it all out on some issues she had with a boyfriend or whatever. She's probably 13 or 15 years old in that in that time where her head spins around a couple times, and, and she was just like, letting it all out. I'm just screaming, crying, blah, blah, blah. and I didn't, say, I didn't say anything. I just, you know, she was just talking the whole time, and then the next morning she said, Dad, thanks for talking to me last night, and I was like, I thought I didn't say a word. <laughs> Sometimes people just want you to listen to them, you know, and that's part of being a great interviewer. I think it's the listening part. Like I said, I didn't say a word to her. She's talked the whole time. It's great talk last night, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For someone in their early twenties, and they have a big goal, a big dream, inspiration hits them, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to go pro at this, or I'm going to." build this into that, something larger than life, what's the first step? Well, I'm going to talk a lot about that. I'm going to talk a lot about that on my podcast, which is coming back because I've been on hiatus since a few months now. And I'm going to be on the Loot 8 platform, which is going to be um, airing and coming out uh, in just a few days. Well, when this, when this airing comes out, it will already have been out. So the Loot 8 platform is going to be a great place to go where people can come and they can stream with me personally. They can All they have to do is sign up and they can come and uh, get personalizations with me. They can text me. Um, we're going to have a lot of free stuff on there too. So it's like I'll have my own community of people that can come on to the platform. They'll be invited onto the platform and they can sign up for it. And it's going to be great. It's going to take my podcast Sounds to another like level. Yeah, it's going to take it to another level. It's called Loot 8. And it'll be by the time this airs, it'll be already be out, and people know about it. So the big, the first big step on on the, on the dream is already accomplished. Because if it's a big dream, that means that you already love something. If you want and have a desire and a dream to do something, you love it. Ninety five percent of it's done. I've had questions all the time. People say, oh, "I'm trying to get my son to, you know, I want him to be an architect, but he wants to do this stuff with financial stuff." And no, no, no. And I say, well, what does he love? What does he love to do? What should I get him to do? What does he love? He loves to do the financial stuff. And I said, well, let him explore that then. I believe in taking the reins off and let him go. Let him go. Let him uh. just, let him run out. Let him fail. Please let him fail. A lot of times parents want to be, they want to, they want to, uh, they want to protect them so much. And I get it. It's all good intentioned. I'm in, I'm in favor of letting them fail. Let them fall down. Let them cut themselves. Let them bump their teeth. Hey, it's the best way. And let them learn how to fix it on their own. Let them learn how to fix it. Be there for them, loving and, and, and doing all that. But let them fix it. You got to learn. It's like, a, it's, it's like a, a, a pitcher when he's out there pitching. And he gets into trouble. And they uh, bring in the other pitcher. You know what I mean? These guys in their careers... In the minor leagues, they should let these guys go. Let let them let them get into trouble. Let them learn how to fix it. Work it out. Yes, yes. Let them learn how to fix it, 
And you know what's great too? We were talking about that in a, in a little bit before is how trade schools, you know, we talk yes. about trade schools, how in trade schools, you got to learn a lot of stuff as you're being tutored, but you have to learn how to fix it on your own. And that's what I love about trade schools. I'm all for college too, but trade schools are great. I mean, you know what? If I wasn't a baseball player, I would have probably taken on a trade and I would have done whatever it was. And I would have been on my own early, maybe got two or three stores, whatever it was. And heck, by the time you're 30, you could be a millionaire. Yes. I love trade schools. Oh yeah. If you got a guy, a guy or a gal out there that's, that wants to get after it and loves something a lot. Oh, I'm all for the trade school. They got a head start, and that's another thing I wanted to mention real quick is this head start. What's it? the head start? Is you got to get up early. Okay, you can't you can't be sleeping until ten o'clock. Pinch sleep or go to bed earlier to get up early. Oh, I'm saying I'm saying I, I go to bed early, but okay, you know nobody so, has to. So pinch do what sleep I do. if you have to. Because hey, get up early. Right. Okay. You know what? If you get up at six o'clock. And the rest of your age group is getting up at nine. You got you got three hours advance on your competition every day. Can you imagine what that's going to wind up with at the end of a year? Three hundred sixty-five days a year. You know, it's like a thousand hours yeah. you have an advance on your competition. I mean, it's amazing what that can do. That one little thing to get up, you know, relatively early, if you consider that. I mean. You got a huge advance on your competition, so I'm I'm a big advocate for that. You know, have a structure in your day and get up get up a little early. Sleep until ten or eleven. I mean, ugh, I yeah, can imagine that, that. <laughs> day's already gone. I I think I get the shakes if I woke up. It's ten o'clock. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd get, oh my god, what's going on here? Yeah. I gotta do stuff, man. Yep. Day's going by. So anyway, I think that's a that's an important thing too. Do you want to talk about your NFT? You want to tell a little bit about that? Sure. Okay. Really and, cool. And, and, and NFT is a non-fungible token, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which means that it's absolutely immutable. It can't be changed, altered, or uh, added or subtracted in any way. And it's minted on the blockchain, so it's uh, it's impregnable. You can't you can't get into it and change it. Great. That's what an NFT does. I can't believe you just nailed that. Do you know how many times I've tried to teach myself <laughs> oh, really? one? I've yeah. asked people. That's getting yeah. uh, that that's going somewhere. Yeah, that that's what <laughs> continue. It is. Sorry. Not, okay. And it's called Babe and the Kids. That's the name of it. I love it. Yeah. Any so. available for the public? Yeah, we're holding 50 back for the public as well. So um, they can just go to babeandthekids.com, babeandthekids.com. They're $15,000 each. And we are donating a big portion of the proce- uh, profits because we're a for-profit company. We do other projects. But we're donating a big portion of our profits as a matter of fact, 75% of all the money that's going to my son's foundation this year is going to come from the sale of this project. We're going to donate several hundred thousand dollars to my son's foundation from this. And a real quick blurb on your son's foundation? Yeah, it's called the Captain John J. Sachs Foundation. People can go to it by just going to johnnyourhero.org, johnnyourhero.org. And the foundation is about um, helping other aviators realize and capture their dreams like my son did. He wanted to become an aviator. So whether it's somebody that's trying to get through college that wants to be an officer in the Marine Corps or like John did, or, you know, they have, uh, you know, a, a hardship in the family, maybe whatever it may be, we're going to help them accomplish 
the dream of being an aviator. So it's a great cause. You have a lot going on. You have a lot to offer. I'm glad you got it in the book. I'm sure you've got speaking's book, the stevesackspeaks.com. Check yeah, that out give, if you Give wanna... me about 20 more speeches this year, Trevor. I'd love it. There you go. <laughs> there love you it. go. Well, <laughs> yeah. get them out here, guys, because I don't know if it came through in the camera. I'm pretty sure it did, but there's just a, a vibe coming off this guy and energy. There you go. Vibe yeah. with humanity. That's it. All right. Thanks for having Thank me, Thank you for brother. joining. Yep. Thank you.